welcome to the Safety Doc Podcast with your charismatic host and prominent safety expert, Dr. David Perotin. Be entertained and informed as the Safety Doc discusses both best and bizarre practices in safety preparation and crisis response. The truth will keep you safe. Follow Dr. Perotin on Twitter at SafetyPhD. This is David and welcome to the Safety Doc Podcast. Busy couple of weeks here on the show as we talked about Hurricane Harvey and then also Hurricane Irma. We will change pace a little bit today, uh, finally getting toward looking at recovery and, and the questions that go along with recovery such as, is price gouging a good thing or is it a bad thing? I mean, a lot of people would say it's a bad thing, but there are some reasons we're going to talk about why price gouging actually uh, might be a good thing. And also um, talking about what it means for government role in preparedness and response and what if government wasn't there and what if this was done through private sector. Also, people taking it upon themselves right now um, through the goodness of their hearts to bring supplies into Florida and talking about the advantages of that and also the disadvantages and the flat out risk. And as I refer to my agents in the field, which are people who live in that area or who have been down to those areas, Houston, um, also uh, Florida in the Keys within the last uh, two weeks um, that I've talked to, I'm going to share some information. It's going to be very enlightening, things that uh, I wasn't aware of, wasn't expecting to learn about. And um, anyway, you'll have to wait a little bit for that because let's start out with uh, just some things in the news. The Equifax data breach. This is one of those things that's like you had one job to do, Equifax, one job, which keeping our information, social security numbers, date of birth, licenses, things like that, safe. Um, and you, you couldn't do it. And it's just another in a long line of, you know, Yahoo and Coles and all these others who have said, oh, you know, we had a data breach. And by the way, it was like two months ago. And all of your information could have been harvested. And it's on the dark web somewhere. So uh, I, have a, I have a, first of all, a, a tech friend who works in security. And his opinion is that all of our data, our personal private data, is stored on probably six servers across the world. And whether or not that data gets uh, attempts to, to use that to take out different credit cards and, and things like that. He said it's really, um, some of it's hit and miss and others um, have to do with, let's say they Google um, and type in different names and then they see which names bring up the most hits and they're thinking these people are probably very connected across different industries, maybe have a lot of resources. So as we have to prioritize 400 million names, you know, here we'll, we'll pick off the first 10,000 and start there for um, you know, what's showing up in internet searches. So that's, that's his take. I trust him. Um, his opinion was a credit freeze is the best way to go. I didn't know anything about it. I did a little research. You can apparently go in and freeze with Equifax and there were, there's three, I don't know, Experian and another one. Um, you can freeze your credit and apparently there's a fee to that, maybe like $10 to freeze it. And then if you go for a loan or something like that, you can unfreeze your your credit for a certain amount of time. And when it's frozen, apparently then nobody can go in and, and take out new accounts under it. So it, it just seems kind of weird. And and like, like this is a big gimmick. Like why should I have to pay to get my credit froze? Why, why isn't that like the default? Um, and... I don't know. It, it, it it's we're in a society where all of this this vital information is so accessible by skilled hackers, and then it just becomes almost a, a, a roll of the dice of you know are you going to be compromised or or not, and and to the depth of 
is someone going to try to to hack your identity and 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 things like that? So, um, what really bothers me, in addition to Equifax um, messing this up and delaying that they're letting the public know, and that top executives sell stock before the word gets out and and they lose a third of their value. Um, but they also had their security head, which you've probably heard by this time, but security head, Susan Malden, um, looking at her resume, her credentials, a BS and a master's uh, in fine arts and music composition. Um, again, the security head for Equifax. So nothing, I might have said Equivest in there, but it, it's, it's Equifax. But um, nothing really prepares you to be in a role of security. I, do, I really don't care what you did after this. I really don't care when I know people personally and have friends that have high security clearances in the military um, who worked in, you know, uh, defense security and then now work in private company security. That's all they've done their entire lives. I mean, so Susan Malden to come in with your your degrees in music composition and then maybe whatever you've done afterwards and, and you work yourself into this role how all right as I've and I've got to get this on a recording I don't but as um, you know it, it, as I keep asking how in the hell is this allowed to happen how is how how do you put this woman in this position it's it's unbelievable. So, oh, frustrating. Very, very frustrating. And I went on to iTunes, and guess what? You, this, you're not going to believe this. Susan Malden, formerly of Equifax, now is retired, okay? Has retired. So what a sweet deal that probably was. Any of us, you know, for anything f- fractional to this would probably lose our jobs and and never work in the industry or whatever again but no mess up like this under your command susan mullen you get to retire live a nice happy life and probably have to change your social security number and probably change your name too but um uh yeah just just absolutely crazy but anyway i went to itunes and guess what susan mullen greatest hits it's not out there she has not produced anything so the music composition is also a big failure. Um, so yeah, if anything, I was hoping the redeeming quality might have been an album by Susan Malden available for free download because of this. I mean, come on, you can't charge people once you basically almost destroy their lives or potentially do destroy their lives while you are the head of security um, and, and, and not make your music available at no cost. So... Susan, a double disappointment there. Um, I had to throw away my stapler that I bought from Staples. So there's some irony in buying a staple a stapler from a company that's called Staples, um, and also that the the logo for the company is a staple with one side bent. So there's really no functional use to the bent staple as the logo because if you put it in a stapler, it would jam it. If you would try to use it to attach two pieces of paper, the one would fold down and the other wouldn't. So it's like, yeah, kind of kind of an indication of why staples is spiraling out of control and big box stores are closing and they're just getting taken to the cleaners as far as just shutting down. I, I always got a, it never made sense to me when I would go to Staples and they had an aisle where they would sell things, you know, like here's a jug of pretzels or something like that at a ridiculous markup, you know, like you can take to a meeting, like we're, we're an all purpose office supply store. And every mat that I bought from there, by the way, that went under this chair, like the absolute best quality, which was like the absolute of so it's here the quality tier on those mats was like super low quality low quality moderately low quality and slightly better low quality 
And even if you went with the best mat, like it would crack within, you know, a, a matter of a couple months to be wiped out. The mat that I'm using now works great. Bought it, it was reviewed well, bought it off of Amazon, had it quite a while. Um, that one's fine. But yeah, the, the Staples one was just, it was basically like you would buy it and you knew leaving the store, like you're basically almost just renting it to, or you're holding it temporarily until you somehow jam it into the recycling bin. Or I actually put one that was all kind of busted up at the end of my driveway with a sign that said free on it and somebody took it. So I don't know. It could have been a comedian that was going to use it in a skit. But anyway, so my my stapler, and it, it was touted as this. I probably had it for five years. Now, in my opinion, a stapler should never wear out. And I have another one. I don't know. It's a swing. I have two swing lines now. Um, but, uh, but yeah, this thing, it broke. Like, it just, like, clicked one day, and that was it. And then it's, like, some cheap plastic part on it, and there's, like, no fixing it. And I'm just like, come on, it's a stapler. Like, it has the same function. There was nothing else to happen to it. So, like, staples, if there's one thing you want to, like, put your time into getting right, it's making a stapler that has your own logo on it, okay? Embarrassing. And every single notepad I've ever purchased from Staples, every notepad, 8 by 11 notepad, you can tear the first sheet of paper off, like, okay, you know, perforate it at the top. By the time you get, like, two, three in, they start to, like, get the jagged dog ear edge on it. And by the time you get through it, it's pretty much, you know, you're getting a th- three quarters of a page of paper, like you're ripping off at the end. I never had a good experience. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's a mystery to me um, how the store, how c- continued to exist as long as it did. And I just, I, I don't see any future for it. I know the stock is down there. Actually pays a pretty decent dividend now for anyone who wants to speculate on something um, if you're a dividend investor, this is not advice to your due diligence, but uh, I, I just cannot see where a company like that is is just going to survive. Um, so I um, did a bike ride today, and it is September 16th, upper 80 degrees, somewhat humid, which is really something for Wisconsin because I grew up in northern Wisconsin and and now, you know, I'm in southern Wisconsin, but grew up in northern Wisconsin. And by September 16th, I mean, you were talking like 60 degrees and a lot of rain. I just, I, I always remember, like Labor Day would, would hit and it'd be, as a kid, like you knew it, like you're eight or nine, it's like summer's over, it's done. I mean, this is it. And yeah, I mean, you'd wake up and you'd go to school and the frost would, would be on the roofs and the lawns. Not that way yet here, you know, really, really warm. So actually tomorrow I'm going to have to go out and water my, some bushes that I had planted earlier in the year and just make sure they're not drying out. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so like really nice, really nice day today. And by the way, like I tell my, my daughters a story, but um, I remember playing high school football and having a snow covered field for like the last couple games that you'd actually play on snow. And someone asked me, how did that work? Like, did they plow part of the field off or something? And I'm like, I don't I don't actually remember um, how it worked. I know that the markers, um, the big folding orange markers, like 30-yard line, the 40, the 50, the 40, the 30, and there he is, touchdown. But those were on the side, so you always kind of knew where you were with those. But I think where the the lines were, they they shoveled that I don't, I don't think it was a snowblower because the snowblower would have ripped the the grass off the field so i don't i don't remember it that well i i remember it wasn't that bad to play i mean you're kind of conditioned to it where i grew up it wasn't that big of a thing when you're younger you can handle stuff like that like today i'd be like this sucks <laughs> i'd be like i don't want to be out here you know nfl draft me to a warm weather area but um but yeah, I, I remember playing in, in games in the snow. So much different than a, in practicing, like in, you would put a lot of layers on just to, to make sure you're warm. But yeah, September 16th, like I think 88 degrees and, and humid today. So really nice bike ride. Um, I'm out on the ride and, and I'm looking up. First of all, it's really nice. And, and 
I'm passing this one field, and I don't know what it is. It, and uh, and the smell coming off this field is, it's basically like warm butterscotch, um, coming coming off this you know this this field i'm like what is that smell like i smell this before like what is this what is this and i'm finally it's butterscotch it's like warm butterscotch like just someone opened a massive oven door and and this this warmed butterscotch came out which is it, it it was it was really neat at the same time i hate butterscotch like you know, someone tries to, hand, you know, they, they make the, the platter of butterscotch at Christmas and then they shatter it, you know, into the pieces. And here, have some some butterscotch. I'm like, yeah, no, no. I, are you allergic to peanuts or something? I'm like, no, I just, I, I hate this stuff. Like, you know, I wouldn't say that. Come on. I'd be polite about it, but I'm like, no, no. Um, I, I, whoever came up with this I, and people like this, I don't know. Um so yeah, it was, it was kind of weird. And you know how your mind like tries to identify the smell. I'm like, what is that? Like, I've never. It just reminds me, and then I start to have these like Christmassy thoughts and stuff like that. I'm like, oh, I remember, remember the smell of of butterscotch, like when I was growing up, of of being made and put out on the the stove to to cool and and stuff like that. So, um, but anyway, I'm biking today. And I, I get up to this area, um, and there's a there's a T. There's a road that comes in, and it's it's in the country, so it's 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 paved. And this T comes up, um, and I see like a motorcycle parked like right in the middle of the road, like sideways. And again, there's not a lot of people who travel these roads. Um, and I I look, and there's like the couple motorcycles parked to the side. And I, I kind of bike up closer and I'm looking and there's a guy, he's, he's down and, um, he, he's, he's sitting and he has a bottle of water. He's holding on his forehead or someone's holding for him. And, um, you can tell, I mean, by looking like his, I'm assuming it's his bike is kind of like leaning off to the side. I don't know. Like if he, I'm assuming he wiped out. And from where that location is, he probably wasn't going very fast, and I don't know. And, and there's some like loose stones and stuff, so who who knows what happened? But, um, so I, I'm biking through, and I, I I slow down. I'm like, hey, is everything okay? And they're like, yeah, every, everything's all right. And then I go up, and there's a hill that immediately starts, and so I, I, I go up this hill, and and you know maybe about. 400 feet away i'm at the top of this hill which was like my plan stop for today like that's how far i was going to go it was when you get to the top of this hill it's really cool because you can kind of have a good vista every direction so then um there's there's a driveway goes uh, into this residence and it, it really opens up wide where it has this this big gravel um apron that kind of comes in and meets the road so I kind of park a little bit into this driveway. So like, even if somebody comes out, they're not going to run my bike over because it'd be over on one side. And, um, and I can see easily any traffic, like, you know, for a half mile on one side or another. Um, so I, I park and I'm a little, you know, I'm, I'm probably a solid six, eight feet away from the road park, get out my water, get out my beef jerky, Swedish fish, nuts everything i got packed and i'm standing and, and just kind of you know eating my my stuff you know it's like my that's my halfway point so um anyway like all of a sudden i'm looking down and and there's a car it's actually a van it's coming up the road on the other side so remember this, i just passed these these motorcycles and one guy's down and stuff like that and, and i'm kind of watching i'm looking down there i'm like is there like an ambulance that's gonna be coming like the guy the guy didn't seem that hurt, you know, like he was, he seemed like he was talking to people and he's sitting up and, and eventually there was a, a truck that showed up and a couple more motorcycles. And I think they threw the guy's motorcycle on the, in the back of a pickup truck and then like they all took off. Um, but, uh, this, anyway, so on the other side, I can see at least a half mile, there's this car or again, this van and, and it, it's, it comes up the road and all of a sudden it starts to slow down. And this thing is like still like a half mile from me. Now when my bike is parked, like I've got flashing, you know, red lights on the back. I've got a little flashing red light on the back of my helmet. Um, so looking maybe from that distance, it might've, I don't, 
I don't know if it would have surprised somebody, but this person like pulled off the road for a little bit, you know, and their headlights are on and stuff like that. I'm like, is it a police vehicle or I'm like, is it related to this accident that happened down there? And to the, I, I mean, I don't know. So and this person like eases their way up a little bit, pulls over to the side, eases their way. And I'm the whole time eating my snacks and drinking a little bit of water and, you know, and stuff like that. And, and, and this person is easing up and easing up and easing up. And, and finally they get to me and, uh, and they, and they pull all the way to the center of the road, which is like really dangerous at like that point to, to kind of do that because, um, in case someone's coming up the other side where I was at, I was a little bit ahead of where they were at. So they could, uh, they could definitely see, or I, you know, I could see both sides. They couldn't quite see over, over the ridge yet. And this, this lady, um, got a wild cat running around here. This, this lady rolls, rolls, has the window go down and she, she looks at me. All right. And, uh, and she said, Hey, uh, are you all right? And, and I've got sunglasses on too. And I'm, and I'm like, uh, yeah, yeah, I'm fine. I'm fine. Thanks for asking. So she, so she takes off. And as she leaves, she still like leaves super slow. So she's like going down the hill a little bit and then a little bit, you know, slower kind of. And I'm thinking, what, what's the deal? Like, I mean, I'm, I'm standing, I'm, I'm clearly eating and taking a break. Like the bike is upright. There's, there's, there's no indication. I mean, I appreciate like someone pulling up and saying, Hey, is everything all right? And stuff like that. But it was just like, I, I, I couldn't figure it out. And, and the ironic part on that is like, it was last a year ago, last August, um, that I wiped out pretty seriously. So I'm like covered in blood and dripping blood and, you know, literally holding one arm out as I'm biking and my, it's just blood's coming off. It's just, and at that, in my socks, shirts, all blood covered and, and people drive by and nobody said anything, you know, they would just, so, um, but yeah, I, I just was like, what, what did you think was going on? Here, here, you know, there's nothing around. It's it's just me. I mean, and and if you're apprehensive, just drive by. I mean, I don't know, but I it just I'm like, what? Yeah. So, um, very very interesting. So let's take a break right now to learn a little bit more about the safety dock. Thank you for tuning in to the safety dock podcast with the nation's leading safety expert, Dr. David Perodin, author, radio show host, university instructor, researcher, expert witness, and consultant. Powerful testimonials. Dr. Perodin has a strong reputation as the go-to safety consultant, and he was still able to exceed our expectations. When we went looking for an expert in the field of crisis preparedness and prevention, David was the single person we pursued. Not easy stepping into the touchier subjects of life, but Dr. David pulls it off. Take a listen. Now, back to Dr. David Perodin and the Safety Doc Podcast. Welcome back. So, price gouging. Um, there are so so what price gouging is? Price gouging, um, for example, during during Hurricane Harvey, Hurricane Irma, uh, would be um, suddenly you know resources are scarce, so we're going to take instead of uh, the, this case of water being $8, we're going to now make it $50 and we're going to take gas from $2 a gallon up to $8 a gallon, stuff like that. So price gouging is illegal, um, but it does happen. And I have an article that I'm going to read. It's it's not very long, but I, I want to frame this out because price gouging has typically been portrayed as a negative thing. Like this is bad. Like we shouldn't be charging ex- excessive fees for, you know, people who are already um, suffering the ill effects of the disaster and, you know, probably, you know, limited resources and, and having to put this upon them. And 
I can see that, but there's also a counter argument that's presented in this article that I want to get into a little bit more um, and, and then kind of let you know where I settle in on that. And then I also had a very interesting discussion with a friend who was a part of a um, distribution of, of emergency resources, including things like diapers and stuff like that in the uh, Keys area, like just, just recently, like just within the last 24 hours. And, and this person shared a pretty interesting story about um, how this distribution of goods is happening. And largely that there's this, this secondary market that's being generated. There's, um, you know, and I, I'll get into that a little bit more, but, but we talk about price gouging. It's happening down anyway, like flat out it's happening. Um, and is that a bad thing? Um, I, 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 again, let me, let me read the article. Um, all right. So this article is is by Quartz, which I've never heard of. I I don't know. I mean, I, I like the article. Again, it's short, but it's it's written. It's published by Quartz. Um, the author is is Kareen, C O R I N N E Pertel P U R T I L L. Um, the the title is the Economic Case for Price Gouging. Um, so you can go in and, and look under, um, well, uh, yeah, look under quartz and find this apparently. So, all right. It is uh, qz.com. So if you want to find it, but let me read the article. It's short. Um, Ken, this, this article was written by... Corinne Pertel. So this this is her this is her work. As Hurricane Harvey closed in on the Texas Gulf Coast this past week, so she's she's writing this after Hurricane Harvey. She's not writing this after Irma, but but this is pretty identical to what what happened in Irma, if not to a larger extent um, for Irma, because to get resources into uh, Houston once the waters went down, you had east, west, and north to bring resources in. And from Florida, you really could only bring things in from the north. Um, but anyway, as Hurricane Harvey closed in on the Texas Gulf Coast this past week, prices shot up on essentials like water, gasoline, and batteries. And I also want to add in this, like diapers. Diapers go through the roof. Um and it's, it is absolutely crazy. Um, but the Attorney General of Texas issued a stern reminder of the state's anti-price gouging laws, warning that anyone charging an, quote, exorbitant or excessive price, quote, for food, fuel, or medicine during a declared disaster risk prosecution. High prices on essentials during disasters feel instinctively like a cruel blow to people already suffering. But economists say that manipulating the market by forcing sellers to cap their prices can cause even bigger problems for disaster victims. As many economists see it, the higher prices on essential goods in the wake of a disaster like Harvey are an accurate reflection of the greater cost and risk of su supplying the item. So, yeah, I mean, if you're bringing gasoline down to, to, you know, gas stations proximal to the area, you've got to put your vehicles at, at risk. You don't know how safe, you know, the roads are, are going to be, you know, if you're bringing down anything, Um in, into those areas. There's a risk involved with that. Um, so again, let me just keep going. Without the incentive of a profit, suppliers of goods outside the affected area will be less motivated to bring products into disaster zones. Instead of being forced to pay higher prices for ice or gasoline, I don't know why the hell ice was put into this article. That seems like you would have picked something other than ice. Um, for example, people in those areas just end up with no ice or gasoline at all. I, um, okay, let, let, let's read that again. Instead of being forced to pay higher prices for ice or gasoline, for example, people in those areas just end up with no ice or gasoline at all. 
So basically what happens is they're saying this, the store shelves get empty and, and they don't get replenished because there isn't enough incentive to say, if I'm going to take this risk to bring things down during this storm, okay, I'm putting my own uh, resources of, of my um, employer, my employees, I'm going to have to pay um, extra to have them take this risk. My equipment, my equipment can be damaged. Um, in, in all of those types of things factor in. So it has to be worth my while to do this, okay? And if it's not worth my while, then forget it. So by putting in these caps, if they're saying, no, it's not worth it for me to go down there and get my semi, you know, pounded up with shrapnel and, and you know, my drivers are going to refuse to do it or, or quit or whatever. So um, the shelves stay bare. Anticipating such shortages, people hoard goods unnecessarily in the run-up of a storm, resulting in empty shelves common in times of disaster, as the writer Matthew Iglesias pointed out after Superstorm Sandy in 2012. Actually, going all the way back, we saw that big time um, also before Y2K, people buying, uh, you know, here's a 100-pound sack of rice in case all the computer systems go down. And then on, yeah, January 1st, what is it, you know, 2001 um, or 2000, what was it? The, what, any, anyway, the day after, people's like, hey, great, we're, we're having this massive rice party um, to try to you know, rice soup, you know, rice cakes, anything, because we now have 100 pounds of rice we have to use up. Market reflective prices and disasters ultimately ensure a better supply of goods, but the fury they inspire in people already stressed from disaster makes them a frequent target for policymakers. I get that. Price controls, quote, lead to misallocation of resources, long lines, and black markets, quote. Said Jonathan Meir, an associate professor of economics at Texas A&M University, these policies can cause serious distortions, but governments use them quite a bit anyway. People don't like high prices, of course, and unfortunately price controls seem like easy solutions to difficult problems. That was added by Jonathan Muir. So again, these policies cause serious distortions in your natural free market of supply and demand. Um, what is it, the movie um, uh, uh, Operation Petticoat, where they have the uh, Cary Grant was in it. If come on, if if you haven't seen it, I think you can watch it for free actually on on YouTube. It was one of those you know movies filmed after World War II, but it's it was it's a comedy. Um, but they had one of they they had um, one of the crewmen was great at negotiating, so he would go in and he understood kind of the black markets of getting parts for the sub and and stuff like this when no one else could. Um, and, and just the various negotiations that he would put together to, to come up with parts that, that through appropriate channels, there's no way that they could, could have got those to keep that sub going. So, so yeah, we run into this whole issue folks of, um, of price gouging and is it, is it okay? And is it not okay? Are there times it's okay? Um, I'm going to try to put this where I can look at it here in a little bit, which is probably going to fail, but, um, Okay, so my my flat out on this is uh, I I I think it's all right. All right, ethically is it okay? It's it's not ethically okay. Is it the way that the free market system free market system needs to operate in the very short term to continue to get goods to flow into an area before you have FEMA and the military uh, National Guard getting supplies. And yeah, it absolutely is. It absolutely is. And I'll tell you why. Um, right now, like in Wisconsin, I mean, just even Friday, I still passed trucks, um, convoys, you know, in their in they're loaded with, with, you know, truckloads of water. And then, you know, that are, that are, ratcheted down um which i also don't get because i'm like ooh, like put a tarp or something over that because uh i'm not sure the uv light hitting this for a week or two is the best thing but i don't know but anyway um as as i indicated in the previous podcast um 
what happens is we have these these hurricanes, these predictable events um, happen. Now, earthquake is not predictable, but this is predictable. I mean, you know, days in advance that this is going to happen. Um, and you don't do a great job from a FEMA or a state-level perspective of staging your resources or getting people of uh, your your national guard because what your national guard is is doing at that time when you do call them up um you know is, is they're trying to manage things in in the moment and not stage resources is coming in and then one of their first jobs too is going to be to to help get um accessibility of roads and stuff like that but you have people out there remember we talked about the cajun navy you can google the cajun navy and there's the texas navy and all, all these these kind of civilian organizations which can come in and and do a big part if you empower them in the secondary role which would be to help stage um you know divide deliver these necessary goods to people um so anyway you have the, you have this time frame where yeah you don't have a lot coming in for resources uh, to support people, and people aren't going to do that without the without the the compensation for the risk involved. It's just it's a it's not a free market model that anybody's going to follow. Um, that's why, you know, the the person that goes up and I and I knew I knew somebody, and their job was um, this was oh boy, maybe like ten years ago. They they got a job, and one of the things that they needed to do was to climb to the top of wind turbines. Now, I, I talked about with Preston Rice and drones and observing and 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 monitoring drone, uh, using his commercial drone to, to do things like that. But um, this was someone and also involved in repairing if, the, he, need, if he needed to go up there. Um, it didn't, it was fine. Like he was fine with it. It didn't bother him to, to climb up and, you know, he had he got safety measures and things like that. But um, But he made a ton of money doing it. I mean, because really, who's going to do that job? And I drove home, um, oh boy, maybe a month ago, and I saw they're putting new power lines, like these these humongous power poles, and this massive line is coming across Wisconsin, and it goes along um, the interstate where I where I come home, and uh, they had a guy suspended by by a rope from a helicopter, and he's working on these lines. Because there wasn't any way down below, these things are so high and kind of with with uh, with the, the the way that the topography was, it, it just they had to do it from up above. So this guy is is dangling from beneath this this you know maybe seventy five hundred feet down on this rope and and working on these cables. And I'm thinking that guy's getting paid pretty well to to, to do that, you know, like. <laughs> That is that's probably a several hundred dollar an hour job um, easily to to go and do that. Um, but yeah, it 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 is. It's it it all comes down to you know this the supply and demand and free market. And I think the and all this stuff is short lived. But what it does is it creates this this vacuum and this incentive to have goods flow in. And yeah, I mean, people certainly do have to prioritize and, you know, they're going to have to use whatever credit or th- things they can barter, you know, for the most essential items. But I think you keep things going. It's If you have that versus an empty shelf or an empty gas pump and a sign saying no gas here, what, what do you do? What do you do? Okay. So yeah, you know, I can, I can understand because I remember after September 11th, 2001, coming home from work, and I saw a gas line that was several blocks long um, out before the gas station as I entered the town where we lived at that time. And they were, um, they had police there, and they were, I think, limiting people to like five gallons or something like that. And I don't, the price was up. It wasn't like crazy up, but it was maybe like double of what it was. So I don't know what the price was back then. Two dollars, buck fifty, whatever, maybe like three, but and then they would limit you. But everyone was was so irrational and, and convinced to. Um, so in in that case, um, you know, that was kind of going more off of people's fears. 
But this was an event too, where if, I mean, you, you have, um, it's hard to get into to Houston. You're going to have to take a risk and, and, you know, again, pay extra to bring people into that area and to the areas affected by Irma. Um, so let's take a break. All right. And we will be back in just a second to wrap up my thoughts on this article and then something very interesting shared to me by one of my agents in the field. Thank you for tuning in to the Safety Doc Podcast with the nation's leading safety expert, Dr. David Perodin, author, radio show host, university instructor, researcher, expert witness, and consultant. Powerful testimonials. Dr. Perodin has a strong reputation as the go-to safety consultant, and he was still able to exceed our expectations. When we went looking for an expert in the field of crisis preparedness and prevention, David was the single person we pursued. Not easy stepping into the touchier subjects of life, but Dr. David pulls it off. Take a listen. Now, back to Dr. David Perodin and the Safety Doc Podcast. All right, everybody, welcome back to the Safety Doc Podcast. We've been talking about price gouging, um, and I did indicate that I think in certain circumstances, like Houston and Irma, uh, it's it's a better option. And if we have to take a Sophie's choice, I don't know if it's really a Sophie's choice, like the better of, of two negative options, but if you have to have price gouging or your option to that is bare shells where nobody is willing to bring in gasoline or bread or things like that. And you have this delay until you kind of get FEMA resources flowing in. Um, I'd rather go for the price gouging any day. I'd rather tap into my supply and pay for that gasoline or, or that other stuff, because I do know that's going to be short term, like long-term economy, it will bounce back and relative short order once the resources start flowing back in. That's the other, it's not a permanent shift, uh, but it does provide incentive to get those goods out there and you can get some pretty creative, you know, bartering and things like that too. So um, very fascinating. I had a, a friend that had just returned from the Keys, just returned like 24 hours ago from the Keys. And I said, um, you know, I was talking about the the role of the Cajun Navy and the civilian rescuers and, and you know, that really, you know, the government's role in, for example, in, in let's take Irma, um, was, was present, but also I questioned, I'm like, there, I, I didn't think there was really much that government did that could not have been done by private industry, if government hadn't existed. My friend disagreed with this. Her first thing was, well, thankfully, like government was there be to let us know that these storms were on their way. And so we had three, four days notice. And I said, okay, but like if the government, well, first of all, I'm not sure. So the government owns the radar systems and yeah, they, they have, I don't believe that they own all the radar systems or what radar systems they even own, but Satellites are not all government-owned. The NOAA, National Oceans, and I don't know what the other A stands for. Um, and I should, and I'm not going to look it up. But anyway, um, but, you know, these organizations in getting information out there, and radar images and, and a lot of this, and like, yeah, some of that was government, definitely, and government making decisions on evacuation um, and and stuff like that. But I'm like, let's say that didn't exist. I'm like, do you not think that the insurance companies wouldn't pay for radar systems, that they wouldn't privatize that? There wouldn't be incentive to do that. One, that they would know ahead of time um, so they could protect the resources that they're insuring, that there wouldn't be an incentive for um, farmers, you know, to have radar information, um, weather information on, on rain and that, that, that. That you that this wouldn't be something either that would just be so ubiquitous it would be out the out there on the internet anyway because it would be just tied into to marketing that is used by 
by the media right now. So, I mean, the media is offering you reasons to tune into the media. So maybe one of them is to, to watch where the storms are. But, but I said, I don't, think, I don't think that was the case at all. And actually watching the spaghetti models that were coming out of all of these, these, these re, re, researchers plus government models on where the storm was going to track and NOAA and stuff like that, the spaghetti models were way off for Irma. So, um, but I just said, if government didn't exist, if this was if this was privatized, it was free market. I I, I don't believe you'd have, you you your knowledge of this, your radar um, information, stuff like that, would have been any different. Um, if anything, I think it would have been probably more proactive. Um, and then looking at well, then she said, well, then we have the interstate highway system and things like that. I'm like, well, yep, yeah, we we do, and that was you know it's a government that was done after World War II, so we could move military around if there was a nuclear war and stuff like that, but. The interstate system, you know, what, 75 and 95, both run up the coast. I mean, those aren't great. Um, and there are private roads that you can pay for. Um, and, yes, I mean, roads are largely a, a government function. But that's not how roads also started. And that's not how roads are everywhere. You can pay to be on certain roads. Um, so... And then I, I kind of step back a little bit in this this argument. And she was quiet after, after that. And I really respect. She's very intellectual, but didn't expect this from me. And, and I said, um, you know, railroads started out as being completely, you know, privatized railroads. Um, Rockefeller taking oil to customers that, you know, Rockefeller built his own pipelines. That was all done uh, privatized. Um, Edison in, in New York, putting up and, and wiring up his own direct current, um, putting up his, you know, his, his own wires, his own outlets, his own systems through his own company, um, Westinghouse. I mean, all of this was private. Western Union, the telegraph poles, this was private. This was not public. So I said, there's a difference here that we need to, to think about, and that's regulation versus, um, the the actual production of these resources like the government isn't paying to put um the cable tv high-speed wires in my neighborhood and they've been here but i mean that was done by the companies now are they regulated by the government you know saying that you know they they can't they have to operate a certain frequency and they can't interfere with whatever yeah those things are out there but and the depth and some of those things are done by, by codes and whatever. But as, but as far as like the cost of putting that in and getting that service to me, that's not that's not um, paid for by the by the government, um, and it's not the government outside of my town here building a you know billion plus dollar um, coal uh, plant. And do they do they have regulations on you know what the what can exit the coal plant and the scrubbers and all of that? Yes. But as far as like the, the investment in that, and then that gets passed on to the customers and I see it in my bill. So it's one of these issues where um, I, I, I really want to have people think about in times of disaster um, and not just in, in, in using some of these things to frame it up, but in times of disaster, what we're looking at for government um, involvement and in, in government preparedness, government response versus government regulation. And I'll say government regulation also in the form of the Cajun Navy. Remember the Cajun Navy? Uh, oh, I just brought it, you know, I brought it before, but, but Google it. Okay, so it's, again, the civilian group, very loosely organized, um, but comes together with tacit knowledge and can form a system. I mean, and this happens. Like people do this really well, and they do this in other countries really well, too. Um, but they come together, and and they're they're using social media, and they're going and, and they're conducting these rescues because the local um, responders got overwhelmed. Nine one one systems failed, and I know that redundantly because people would take my agents in the field. Thank you very much. Would take screenshots, and literally like would send me zip files. So a zip file is when you have so much information to send, like it's going to overwhelm the Gmail address. So they're like, here's like, you know, various zip files of hundreds of photos that were, or screenshots taken off the internet 
course, if I were to use any of those, I would redact identifying information. But of, of people saying, I'm calling 911, I'm at this address and whatever, and I'm getting nothing. Or, you know, um, uh, yeah, the, the, um, I, I'm, I'm, I got somebody, but they said there's nothing they can do. They're not sending anybody out right now. Or else I'm getting nothing. Um, or I'm asking where my evacuation site is, and they're saying, like, it's changing, and, and we'll get back to you. So anyway, you you have these 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 things like the Cajun Navy. They come in and they help support and and rescue and get goods to people, and they're unregulated. They're not regulated, folks. Although there's been bills in Louisiana, Texas, Florida to regulate the Cajun Navy, um, and some of those were gaining traction. Thankfully, again, the media was very positive in the articles about the. Cajun Navy for Houston and for Irma, more so for Houston. Um, it it more it was just more prevalent in, in Houston the Cajun Navy, but um, of of saying you know thank goodness for the Cajun Navy and the tens of thousands of people that that they rescued through hashtag rescues, people pay, posting on full Facebook and Twitter and and uh, in doing that, and then you had this whole kind of other sub network that developed. And I'm going to interview some of these people and bring them on. Um, and they're going to talk about like their job was to go through and to monitor the tweets that were being put out there. Now, can you have errors in this system? Like, could you have people just go on and start spamming out tweets um, to to try to to you know disrupt things and have some interference? Yeah, and that happened, but that happens in nine one one calls too, and and with anything. Overall, though, this was pretty efficient. You know, this was was pretty efficient, and I I, I don't think anybody would look at this and say for taking a group of individuals and putting them together who are, have never really trained before, have different tasks and knowledge, different types of equipment, boats and stuff like that. And, you know, some of these groups, it's like, you know, they might do this. They could have some there are welders. Some who have been on other rescues. One guy was a meteorologist and whatever, and they get together and they just do what they have to do. And we have a hard time interfacing them again into these, these government instant command systems and FEMA. And so what's happening right now is like all of that kind of happened. And then they kind of pull out and go back to whatever, you know, they, they were, they're doing their jobs. And then you have this big convoy coming in of, of all of your FEMA vehicles with your, your goods and stuff like that. But you do have this window in between that I think price gouging um, happens. And, and the question is and price gouging is also going to have its own cap. I mean, if you're sitting there and charging, you know, twenty five bottle twenty five dollars for a bottle of water, um, the, it's very unlikely somebody is is not going to see that if they're there and say, "Well, I have water that I'm willing to part with for you know eighteen dollars or something like that." It's it, it, the self the free market is going to regulate itself too on stuff like that. Um, so now not a lot of you probably aren't going to agree with me on this this position and I get that but again I see it as a short-term economic um, viable way to do things to bring goods in now of course you got to be smart about it you can also have a situation where you know people are going to to see potential so much benefit off of bringing this in and getting these resources there first that they're going to take risks that are going to put themselves at risk uh, but the other side of that is people are going to be aware and say, well, if I bring everything like in the midst of a 150 mile an hour wind hurricane and I can get it there, who's going to come out and buy it anyway? How am I going to distribute this? So, um, but I'm, I'm going to switch a little bit. So one of my my agents in the field who was down in the Keys distributing things, um, and first of all, it's, it's really tricky because we had somebody locally try to distribute stuff and I don't know how that went, but on, you have to make sure you have a connection down there that you meet up with who can protect your stuff and and set up through proper channels distribution, whether it be at fairgrounds or something like that. Because if you just spring up a semi and you start opening it up and like you're going dis- to distribute stuff, you're going to be overrun. And that can actually get to be pretty pretty violent in some cases. And this is what my friend was saying who's been involved in some rescues of, of saying, um, you know, you also have people who, who come in and say, uh, oh, you know, I'm representing like four of my neighbors and we need this and this and I have my pickup truck, so I'm going to take this. I'm the only one that has it. 
So do you give them the stuff then or do you only give them so much? Because what they could be doing is just taking it and then they black market it and then they're reselling it. Okay, so now they've created kind of their own price gouging system. So they got this much water, these provisions for free from you, and now they've taken it and they've created their own sub-market on this. So you have to be really careful on how you distribute that. So there's a lot of great intended efforts that go out, but you have to call ahead. You know, you have to make these connections ahead with who's down there. And also, like, if you're staging, you know, you're driving down and, do not put a big banner on the side of your thing saying relief for Houston, relief for Irma, like in this truck. And then you're parking it somewhere. And the next day the the locks are busted off the truck and it's all emptied out. Um, you're just asking for trouble. You know, so if you're going down and you're going to stop somewhere, you know, like a Paducah, Kentucky, which I really like Paducah. And, but you might want to call ahead down there to the police and whatever and say, I am taking this to Florida. And I'm going to to stop in Paducah. Could I please park this at you know the sheriff's de- your your local police department or something like that? Can I can I put this somewhere where it, or outside the fire station? I mean, it's going to re- really be unmarked or whatever. But can I put this? And they would work with you. I mean, most likely they're going to say sure, like that, that. We understand. Like this makes sense. Um, instead of you know trying to put it in a in a hotel area or something like that. So um, just those those types of, of things. And, and again, I had a friend who talked about in Haiti giving relief and people were so desperate for relief at that time because everything, shares are, shelves are bare. There wasn't the capacity for really price gouging because nobody had any resources, dollars, money, whatever to spend, trade. Um, so it was like my, my friend almost got punched out. Like she was handing things out and she said she literally almost yeah got beat up by, by some of the people she was handing things out to. They were so desperate. Um, so again, and know who you're giving to. Know who you are giving these resources to when you have these local drives. Because the one that was in my community, I'll be honest, I was skeptical about and not so much skeptical that I felt the person was dishonest because I didn't feel it. There was an article in the paper and there was some background, but I just didn't understand how that person would then network in to distribute these items, like what network they were going to plug into once they got into Houston or or Florida or whatever. That wasn't clear to me. And I'm I'm not sure it was clear to them either. And the fact that they think roads are going to be open, and I know they're not. I know there's massive road damage. Or my agents in the field down there saying, "Dave, it's hard to get stuff anywhere." Um, so yeah, I think that becomes another problem where it's like all of a sudden you got everything, and it's like you can only go so far. And then how much of it is non-perishable versus perishable, and 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 stuff like that. So um, yeah, really, really some interesting things and I, I i appreciated that conversation with her and after you know we had the initial thing about the radar you know the the radar systems and, and stuff like that she didn't really say too much more and I, I i completely respect her opinion in her on the ground work that she's done so i didn't continue on too much with it um, because i know we'll have a follow-up discussion on this and either she'll she'll kind of go with my perspective or she'll bring like a new perspective to it. Um, and, and I think that's something too. It's like once you inter- introduce this type of thing to, to people, um, because no one, a lot of people, especially the, the younger generation, they haven't thought about what it's like to have, um, you know, government not involved in, in these types of, of rescues, just thinking the government is going to be there. Um, and the truth is, they're probably not going to be there at least right away. Um, and you're going to need to be very, very self-sufficient, even in probably the most significant rescues. Because what, you know, Florida, 20 million and a third of the people are under mandatory evacuation, like 7 million. That's more than Wisconsin. And you have limited, you know, interstate ways to get them out. So, um, yep, Florida did a much better job. FEMA did a much better job. Um in, in that versus versus Harvey, I think lessons were learned. There's still not an interface with, with how social media works and people are going to continue to use social media. So getting some of those things put together.